Hello and welcome to Buzz Me In, a podcast by media associates for media associates. My name is Eliza Cohen. And I'm Laurel O'Dell. And we're both media associates at CMS and your podcast hosts. Buzz is a network for professionals in the media industry. And the goal of this podcast is to speak to some of those professionals to find out what it is they do, how they do it, and how they got to where they are today. We'll also cover some key trends in the media industry by sector. Today's guest is Sue Mae Thompson, CEO of Media Trust, a London-based charity that works with the media industry to give charities, underrepresented communities, and young people a stronger voice. Sue Mae started her fascinating multifaceted career as a corporate finance associate. She then went on to run a number of successful media businesses before joining the third sector and blazing a trail as a highly regarded equalities campaigner. Besides running Media Trust, Sue May is also a commissioner at the EHRC and serves on a number of non-profit boards. Welcome, Sue May. I'd like to begin by talking about your career path. You went from being a corporate finance lawyer to a media executive, working at companies like Disney and the Financial Times, before pivoting to the non-profit sector to run leading charities like the Women's Foundation in Hong Kong and now Media Trust. Can you tell us a little bit more about this trajectory, from life at a city law firm to running media businesses and now to civil society campaigner? Sure. Well, I think the three chapters of my professional life may look quite distinct, but actually there were a lot of red threads that run through them. One is that I've been incredibly fortunate to learn from and work with really smart and creative people all through my career, um, from the incredibly bright deal makers and problem solvers at the city firm that I worked at, um, Linklaters, um, to the brilliantly creative storytellers and imagineers at Disney, to the amazing journalists at the FT. And I'm still in awe of how reporters take multiple conflicting accounts and hone them into a piece of incisive, inspired reporting, often on ridiculously short deadlines. Um, and of course, most recently, I've been lucky to work with lots of really passionate and driven civil society campaigners. The second red thread is I've always worked for brands and organizations that are very values driven whether it's Disney with its strong family values or Pearson, who used to own the FT, which had brave, decent and imaginative as its core values. I've always gravitated to organizations that have very strong values way before corporate purpose became such a thing. And of course, we, we've seen how consumers are now choosing products and services based on whether the brands or businesses have a purpose that resonates with their values. The last thing to say is that although I haven't now practiced law as such for a very long time, I've never regretted the years I spent getting my law degrees or the time I spent both at a law firm and then in-house before moving into general management. Legal skills are just so important, whether it's being able to quickly master and analyze a lot of content, being able to write succinctly, to feel confident, negotiating, conflict resolution. They're, they're skills that are relevant to, to any job. And in the end, I guess I'm grateful to my parents for being typically Asian and insisting that I did law at uni rather than English or music, which would have been my first choice. My mum was actually general counsel of the main development bank in Malaysia at a time when most women didn't, didn't even work. So my own path was somewhat preordained. I'm now trying to get my daughters to go the other way, but I'm failing because our 13-year-old Allegra has already decided she wants to be a lawyer. I guess in my day, choices for what to study and for a career felt more prescribed, especially if you were from an Asian family. And I don't want my girls to feel the same boundaries now. 
I don't really care what they do. It can be Viking mythology or badminton, provided it's something they're passionate about and gives them joy. I think my vote is for Viking mythology. <laughs> that, that sounds like an amazing career path. <laughs> and uh, speaking of career paths, so I'm really curious. So when you made the move from, from corporate finance lawyer to sort of in-house executive, what made you choose the media sector over other sectors? Because obviously it doesn't seem like a straight line, but clearly in your mind it, it was. So just can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, working in the media was was always the dream. So growing up as a child in Malaysia was a very sheltered experience. I was really curious about other countries and cultures and books, films and TV were my window to that wider world. So I read every book I get my hands on, watch every film that got screened at our local cinema and devoured anything and everything that got shown on back in the day, three TV channels. And I remember our family only got a color TV in 1984. So my dad bought it so we could watch the LA Olympics in color. So that is a bit of a metaphor, I think, for how I feel about the media, you know, how it expands your horizons, takes you outside your physical boundaries, gives you a ringside seat to the most amazing places and events, brings you up close to other people's lives um, and experiences, successes and failures. I, I think it just pitches you from black and white to dazzling color. I definitely agree with that. Um, so we understand that you took a year-long career sabbatical after being co-head of Christie's in Asia. A lot would see that as a risky move. So can you tell us a bit more about what went into that decision and would you do it again with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, this, this actually starts to get quite personal, but I'm really happy to share because, you know, having shared my story in the past with other women in particular, people have told me it's, it's helped them. So, so here goes. So I, I had a fantastic job at Christie's. Um, I was co-head of Asia, as you said. I was tasked with writing their business plan for China, for India, for Indian art, for wine in Asia. And I also had the responsibility, I suppose, of replacing our country heads in Singapore, India, Shanghai, and Indonesia. So, you know, really key markets. And I, I really loved the challenge. Um, but I have to say on the family front, when I took the job, I already had Tallulah, who was about 18 months old, and I was pregnant with our second daughter, Allegra. I was on my Blackberry in the delivery room. <laughs> I was working again remotely the day after Leggy was born. I started business trips again as soon as I could, but I never felt I was spending enough time in market. And I was also acutely aware that I, I felt I was neglecting Tallulah, and I never thought I'd be someone who couldn't combine work and family life. But um, my husband, who is super supportive, said, look, you know, you're killing yourself trying to be superwoman. You know, take a take a short break. You know, you can, of course, come back. And that's how I ended up taking a career break. And it was just such a huge eye opener because I never realized before the stereotypes and microaggressions that are inflicted on full time moms, like how you're not expected at a dinner party or social gathering to have views on anything other than raising kids. And the whole experience helped me understand why so many accomplished women who decide to take a break feel unnerved by the experience and how much confidence, courage and determination it takes to get back into the saddle, especially since many employers and search firms still see it as risky to hire women who've taken a break. So this was a key motivation for me to join the Women's Foundation rather than go back to corporate life, um, amongst other things, TWF advocates for policy change to allow women to achieve their full potential. And the other thing which was really life-changing that I did during my 
year-long sabbatical was I joined the board of Save the Children in Hong Kong. And the experience of visiting run-down public housing, underfunded and underserved schools, seeing close up the gaps in social care was, was just like an epiphany. And it prompted me to switch to the third sector and to spend you know, these last 10 years campaigning for greater equality, um, starting of gender equality, but now all minorities. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sume. That was, that was great. And uh, I think it sort of puts career in perspective when you consider, you know, priorities and, you know, there, there's, there, are, more, there are more things in life, as they say. Um, but speaking of incredibly successful women, uh, such as yourself, um, women leaders like Jacinda Ardern have been praised for their response to the pandemic. And within the media sector, we have seen more women in CEO roles like Carolyn McCall at ITV, Alex Mayon at Channel 4, and Nicola Mendelson at Facebook. So just curious to get your thoughts on whether you think that this is this moment in time is a pivotal moment for female leadership. And if so, why do you think that is? I think you're right. And the pandemic has really allowed women leaders to shine. And I think that's so for a number of reasons. First, I think what this crisis has shown us is that it's the leaders who are communicating with employees of the public or on a more direct and personal level who are winning hearts and minds. So Jacinda Ardern is the prime example of this, you know, the way she uses Facebook Live, wears old sweatshirts, gives us glimpses of her family life, doesn't shy away from portraying her own vulnerability. You know, for most of us, Zoom and Teams have generated a much more intimate relationship with our colleagues as we've been given a close-up view of people's homes and usually inadvertently their families and their pets. Boundaries have come down and we're actually seeing people much more fully than before, even when we were able to meet face-to-face. And that has had a huge impact on what authentic communications now looks and feels like. And so going forward, I think leaders will need to embrace that much more informal, less scripted comms, more conversational, equalizing, interactive. And I think women find this style of comms more natural than a lot of men. Secondly, clearly the pandemic has forced everyone to embrace flexible working. And it's the organizations that have been able to do this effectively that are coming out of the crisis the best. In some cases, they're even stronger now than when they went into lockdown. And flexible working is something that women have always cared about, advocated for, and have had lots of experience of. So I think as a result, it's been easier and a more natural transition for women leaders to drive this in respect of their teams and their organizations. And lastly, now that we are interacting online all the time, we no longer have the physical cues that build and sustain our sense of identity um, and validate um, you know, us and our work. And it's harder to connect and read people. And this is having a massive impact on self-doubt and ultimately people's mental health. And, and we know women are more prone to imposter syndrome than men. Apparently it affects 25% of men, but over 50% of women. Incidentally, apparently it affects, you know, 75% of people working in the media and creative sector. But as a result, I think, you know, the women who have made it tend to be more inclusive leaders. They're more likely to have the patience and passion for nurturing and developing talent and to support colleagues who are struggling with their confidence and mental health issues. Thanks. Um, So just to pivot a little bit, um, 
on to MediaTrust. So you are CEO of MediaTrust, which is a nonprofit organization that works to give charities, marginalized communities, and young people a stronger voice. So can you tell us a little bit more about the work that MediaTrust does and how you work with media industry partners? Absolutely. So it has been a privilege to be CEO of MediaTrust for the past four years. Um, I still feel astounded and excited every day by the magic of what we do, which is to use the power of the media to transform lives. Um, we believe that it's by giving everyone a voice that will get to a more equal society. And that's why we're helping marginalized communities to challenge entrenched negative stereotypes, advocate for more authentic media representation, and we're helping charities with their storytelling, advocacy and campaigning, press engagement and social media. And we do this through media and comms training for charities delivered with the help of our media industry partners by matching charities looking for pro bono comms support with media industry volunteers because we know that nonprofit work can't just be done by nonprofits. Meanwhile, our youth programs are giving young people from diverse, mostly disadvantaged backgrounds the foundational skills, access, and mentoring to break into the media because we know talent is everywhere, but opportunities are not. And we really wouldn't be able to do the work we do without media industry support. Our incredible industry partners hail from the major broadcasters like BBC Channel 4 ITV and Sky to media giants like Discovery, Warner and Viacom, agencies within the Dentsu, Ogilvy and Omnicom networks, PR firms like Edelman, and last but very much not least, the social media platforms, including Facebook, Google, Snap and Twitter. So the, the UK media and creative industry are globally recognized uh, for their incredible storytelling and their power to create content that's uplifting and inspiring. What we're trying to do is to ensure that that power is also used to champion a broader spectrum of voices. You know, the industry has incredible expertise in influencing hearts and minds, building community and movements. And we connect that talent with charities and community groups who are crying out for these skills. So our flagship programs include working with Google to provide digital comms training to thousands of charities, our Stronger Voices program, which is building the comms capabilities of equality organizations across London, our work to reframe disability in the news in partnership with the BBC. Eliza, this is of course the project that you and CMS worked on and how we met. Um, <laughs> and we recently launched two new programs our Western Communicating Climate Program aimed at strengthening the voice of environmental charities ahead of COP26, and our headlining mental health program aimed at building the comms capabilities of small and medium-sized mental health charities at a time when there's arguably never been more need to support people's mental health. Thank you. We think the work Media Trust does is just brilliant. Um, We've talked about the pandemic generally, but how has Media Trust in particular had to adapt to the challenges of the pandemic and has it accelerated any trends in the nonprofit and media sectors? Big question. Yes. Uh, so COVID really shone a spotlight on inequality within society. But the good news is I think it feels like it brought about both a greater consciousness about societal divisions, but also a greater public will to do something about it. And, you know, whether that's out of more empathy or enlightened self-interest, um, you know, people have realized that their health, education, and welfare are inextricably linked to the health, education, and welfare of the poorest and most vulnerable in society. And that gap 
can't continue to grow without hurting everyone. So for me to trust, there are really three major factors at play, which mean our work has never felt more relevant or needed. First, there's never been a more critical time for underrepresented communities to tell their story. COVID and Black Lives Matter have underscored how we need to do a better job of listening to voices of people with lived experience of discrimination and disadvantage. Secondly, it's clear that charities need to bridge the digital divide or risk getting left behind. And thirdly, young people's learning and prospects have been impacted by COVID and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are likely to be the most affected. So as soon as the pandemic broke, um, Media Trust galvanized media industry support for charities who told us in the COVID comms charity survey that we launched within weeks of the first lockdown last March, that they were struggling with the migration to digital for their communications. So over 200 charities responded, 98% said they were struggling with comms, how to shift services that were previously face-to-face -face online, how to create digital content, and how to navigate that plethora of available platforms and apps to connect with beneficiaries, partners, volunteers, and donors. And the response from our industry partners was amazing. We quickly launched a series of free weekly webinars. Our first webinar with Twitter last May attracted more than 300 charities who signed up in the space of the first hour. And you know, that provided platform updates, audience insights, and content ideas on, on how charities can use Twitter. And then we followed that up with a webinar from Snap on reaching younger audiences, from BBH on creating cut through content and others. We also ran our first ever three week digital summer school for charities. 200 charities turned up for that last August. It was so successful, we've ended up running um, a digital spring school in April and we're running our second digital summer school as we speak. The, the other thing that we saw um, was a massive spike in volunteers, particularly volunteers signing up to our online matching platform where charities can post their needs for expert comms support and media and creative industry volunteers can find opportunities to give back that align with their interest skills and availability. And charities we helped during that period include The Big Issue, who because of the pandemic, they were hit with declining magazine street sales and needed to quickly pivot to online fundraising. And we matched them with agency This Place, who quickly assessed The Big Issue's COVID-19 appeals webpage. They helped identify areas for improvement and generated a set of recommendations to optimize the page. Another match that we made was for Ealing Mencap, who found a media industry volunteer to work on their hashtag look I can campaign and help them develop digital resources for people with learning disabilities to use at home. So, you know, I think, you know, you know really meaningful work and, um, you know, we love doing this kind of matching of good skills and good causes. But besides this one-on-one -on -one matching, we're also known for our success in organizing large-scale volunteering events. And uh, just in June this year, we pulled off an amazing event with MGOMD, who mobilized over 400 employees to spend a day with almost 30 environmental charities honing their comms strategy and planning. So you know, how else we were impacted by COVID? All of our youth programs were previously delivered in person. Our Creativity Works program is a 10-week multimedia boot camp, usually delivered face-to-face -face in classroom settings. We take our young people to visit industry partners at their headquarters. 
When lockdown was announced last March, we were only on day two of a 10-week program, um, but we persevered. We managed to pivot and deliver the whole thing successfully online. We even ended up involving our young people in a project by the Mayor's Fund for London that saw young people in London and New York share lockdown stories through video and other digital content. So, you know, COVID really forced us to innovate as well. And, you know, we're now much more confident in our ability to deliver engaging training and to set and judge practical creative assignments online. So I think, you know, every cloud does have a silver lining. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that it sounds like Media Trust has has weathered the storm quite well and has really sort of pivoted quite admirably in terms of the kind of work that it does and how it's been able to support um, various media businesses in terms of how they are also able to weather the storm. So incredibly well done. Um, you met in, in terms of things that are incredibly well done, you mentioned Media Trust's reframing disability in the news initiative earlier. And uh, media representation is something you've clearly thought a lot about. And when you were at the Women's Foundation, you actually produced an award-winning documentary called She Objects, and I love the name, by the way, on the objectification of women. And uh, your TED Talk, which was titled Dying to be Thin, was about girls and body image issues. And you've just shared a panel on building an anti-racist media as part of this year's Oxford Media Convention. So... In your words, why does representation like this matter? Sort of what can people get out of it? What does it bring um, to the floor? You know the media can be an incredible force for good, but it also has the power to create and exacerbate stereotypes, which are the root cause of so many challenges um, that minorities face in schools, the workplace, and in their everyday lives. At the Women's Foundation, we were particularly concerned of the way the media entrenches gender stereotypes which perpetuate discrimination against and constrain women um, in their choices and actions. So for instance, how advertising sets unrealistic standards of physical perfection, which has implications for anorexia, self-harm, other body image issues for women and girls. Too many news reports on rape accounts have a victim shaming slant. And it's not just women who are harmed by a media culture that objectifies women, the way that the media portrays relationships equating success with sexual conquests, happiness with good looks, means both girls and boys who are more awkward, less confident, they feel ashamed, they feel angry because their lives don't measure up to largely imaginary role models. So I have thought a lot about um, representation and why it matters. And I drove a project, as you said, at the Women's Foundation to raise the funding to make a new documentary which explored gender stereotypes within news reporting, advertising, TV soaps, music videos, and video games. And uh, I was the associate producer for She Objects. Um, it was an amazing experience, gave me so much respect for documentary filmmakers, um, a really acute understanding of how challenging it is to choose the right interview subjects, what to edit out as much as what to leave in, um, she Objects won a couple of awards. It made it onto the film festival circuit. I was invited to talk about it at Cannes, which will probably be the most glamorous thing I ever do in my life. And as you said, I also did a TED talk, which is probably the most scary thing I'll ever do in my life. But bringing this back to the UK, you know, if, if YouGov is right and more than 60% of the British public get their knowledge about Islam from the media, then the criticism that's often leveled at the media for promoting negative stereotypes about Muslims is concerning. At the same time, 20% of us have a disability, 
but disabled people are still largely invisible when it comes to films and TV content and advertising. So what does that do for the agency self-esteem of disabled people? What does that say to potential employers, um, not enough of whom are currently recognizing the talent of disabled people? In my own home, my girls and I still call out Asian when we're watching TV and someone Asian comes on in a program or an ad. Um, but I think the benefits of more representative media go even further than feeling that you're seen. It's not just important to show people themselves and make them feel they matter. It's perhaps even more important to show people, people who are different from who they are because of that power of the media to help us relate to stories that aren't our own, to walk in someone else's shoes, to go on their journey, to see life through their eyes. And it's that transcendental power that that media gives us a more expansive view of who we are, makes us realize what unites us is far greater than what divides us. So if those of us involved in media want to do our bit to tackle inequality, then as Riz Ahmed memorably said in his Channel 4 annual diversity lecture, the media industry needs to step up to help push our imagination to be as broad as our community actually is. That's all so interesting to hear about, and it's amazing how much you do. On that topic, besides your day job, you're an EHRC commissioner, a trustee of the Orwell Foundation. You're also an English National Opera Advisory Board member and a member of Wackle's campaigning committee, which are just incredible. What would be your advice for anyone listening who might be considering taking up a non-executive position? I would say just do it. Just leap in. Even before Lean In was a thing, I, I always put my hand up for every opportunity that presented itself to learn new things, meet new people, travel to new places, take on more responsibility. Whether it was within or outside of my day job, putting myself in the way of opportunities meant I gained so much by way of new insights, perspectives, new contacts, really accelerated my personal professional development. I really believe it's important to build a career in the context of a life, not a life in the context of a career. If nothing else, having other things in your life will provide you with solace and something to keep you going when things aren't going how you want them to in your job. Um, and that happens even to the best of people. We always like to uh, end these podcasts on what I like to call a hard hitting journalistic note. So <laughs> in the interests of asking those hard hitting journalistic questions, the public are dying to know, what TV did you watch during lockdown? Well, over the last year, I have to admit to watching a lot of TV with my 13-year-old. Um, so Leggy and I adored A Suitable Boy, Noughts and Crosses, and his dark materials. Oh, I've just realized they're all book adaptations. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I think my favorite show of all and something I did not watch of my daughter was Normal People, which I thought was amazing. And I think we all wanted to date Connell and, uh, and Marianne. <laughs> and that's, that's a book right. adaptation too. <laughs> it is, yeah. But I also watched um, a lot of comedy on YouTube. Um, just want to give a shout out to Phil Wang. He is you know, Malaysian, Eurasian. Um, and he's really deft in how he takes East Asian stereotypes and tropes and makes fun of them while making the point that actually we're not so different from anyone else. That sounds like a great recommendation. I'm going to have to check that out. 
Thank you so much, Sime, for coming on our podcast. You've had such an interesting career path, and we are in awe of the work that you and Media Trust do. And it's been so great to hear about all the amazing things that you've been involved in in your career and that Media Trust has done um, both recently and in particular in, in the heart of the pandemic. So thank you so much. And this has been CMS Presents Buzz Me In. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hey.